This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Welcome to the Dora County Pulse podcast. My name is Deborah Fitzgerald, and today I'm talking with Stephen Vavris, who is the senior scientist at the Nelson Institute of Environmental Studies out of UW-Madison. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks, Deborah. Good to be here. Good to have you here. So um, I understand you, you have a PhD in atmospheric sciences. Is that correct? That's right. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit about what it is that you do at the Nelson Institute? Well, as a senior scientist, I'm engaged in full-time research on a variety of climate-related topics. Um, They all relate in some way to how our climate's changing and how it's going to change in the future. What differs is are things like the timescale. I have a project looking at the origins of humans' influence on global climate, Mm -hmm. uh, so starting thousands of years ago. And then um, a lot of my research is directed toward future climate change later this century. And then geographically, my interests range from the Arctic is one of my big areas, as well as closer to home in the Great Lakes and in Wisconsin, specifically. So uh, wide-ranging interests here. Okay. Now, you were recently a guest speaker for the Climate Change Coalition of Door County. And can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about what you talked about uh, during that forum? Yeah, so I talked about how climate change is proceeding globally all the way down to the local scale. So I gave some examples of trends globally, things like you know record warm years happening nearly every year uh, or near record warmth every year globally. Mm-hmm. Showed a, a animation of how those changes have proceeded across the globe since the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. And then um, I talked about how the driver of this is pollution and then carbon dioxide production primarily. And then um, zoomed in a little closer to home at the national and then uh, Wisconsin scale. So brought it home a little bit more for the, the audience uh, everyday location. Okay. So is it a little easier to talk about uh, climate change when we when we are as hot as we've been in Wisconsin for the past seven days? Oh boy, it's been really hot. And in the southern part of the state, it's been really dry too. The northern part's been getting a little more rainfall, but it's been very drought-like here and, and very hot. And coincidentally, though, I did not have to, the heat wave happening at the time that I spoke last week. It just it proceeded since then, mm-hmm. but uh, it's certainly taken hold now. But uh, with all of these talks, I try to bring the climate change issue closer to home, things mm-hmm. that people can relate to in their everyday lives, so sure. things like great lake levels and flooding and, and heat waves and so forth. So all of the extreme weather events. So when we have this much hot weather and humidity and dry conditions this early in the season, is this just an anomaly or is this part of the greater trend of climate change? Because there's a difference, right, between weather and climate. Right, yeah. So um, climate is basically, climate is what we expect and weather is what we get. And so, you know, another way to think of it is like a climate is like someone's personality, the way they normally behave. And mm. then weather is like their everyday action. So even a calm, cool, collected person can sometimes lose their temper, just like the climate can sometimes behave anomalously. Huh. I really like that way to describe it. I've never heard that. That's good. <laughs> yeah, wasn't my my idea, but I, I liked it too. Yeah. Um, but in this case, there are certain uh, extreme weather events that we, even if we can't attribute directly to climate change, we can certainly say they're con- 
with, mm-hmm. and we can even run climate models to try to quantify how much more likely they are okay. uh, due to climate change. So, for example, heat waves would be one example. Mm-hmm. Um, another one would be heavy rainfalls. Uh, people have done these sorts of studies on really strong hurricanes, like Hurricane Harvey that struck Houston a few years ago. And so, you know, whereas other types of weather extremes are unusual, different from what we expect, like that really bad cold wave we had in the middle of February this year. Mm-hmm. In general, we expect over time we'll see fewer of those, but that can happen too, even amid a warming climate. So then you can actually take, let's take this week that we've experienced, you can take this week and do modeling and determine whether or not this behavioral pattern is going to persist or continue or trend? Well, what happens is uh, there are people who do um, studies, they're called attribution studies. Mm-hmm. And so what we do, I, I don't haven't done these personally, but I'm familiar with them. And so people run climate models for two different climate scenarios. Okay. The one is the real climate, uh, taking into account the increases in greenhouse gas concentrations and the warmer conditions we've been experiencing. And then the so-called counterfactual climate, Mm-hmm. which is a, a would-be climate if we humans had not been polluting the atmosphere so much. So you could think of this as being like the climate of, say, 200 years ago before okay. the Industrial Revolution. And so people run these climate models for these two scenarios, and you can then tell, based on the output of these models, how much more likely a heat wave is in Wisconsin in the present day compared to a hypothetical cooler climate that would have taken place without human influence. Hmm. And so by doing enough of these simulations, getting enough model output, you can actually generate statistics and say things like, you know, a certain heat wave might be 50% more likely now than it would have been in a climate without humans polluting the atmosphere. And in some cases, people have actually determined that essentially a certain extreme weather event would have been impossible had it not been for human-induced climate change. Hmm. So this is a growing cottage industry in my field, people doing these attribution studies so that we can actually address how much more likely climate change has made certain weather events. Okay. So then to bring it a little bit closer to home, what kind of climate can we expect to experience in Wisconsin and Door County specifically? Because Door County is, uh, you know, does have kind of a different climate, doesn't it, from the west of Wisconsin? Mm -hmm. Right. So Wisconsin-wide and in Door County, warmer and wetter. Those are the two key words to describe climate change. That's the way the climate's been changing over the past several decades, and it's the way we expect it to continue to change in the future. Mm -hmm. Door County is no exception, but as you say, Door is different, very different geographically Mm -hmm. uh, based on its proximity in the Great Lakes. And so the buffering effect of Lake Michigan has a significant effect on Door County's climate, as Mm -hmm. locals know. Mm -hmm. And that influence will continue in the future. And one of the points that I brought up in my talk is how we believe that some of the extreme weather events uh, will be tempered indoor in the future, and in mm. particular, very hot days. So we're seeing a great example of this right now. It's been in the 90s. We're, I'm, I'm here in Beloit. We're supposed to get into the mid-90s today, mm-hmm. but it looked like door was going to stay considerably cooler. Not cool, but cooler. Right. And so when we look at projections of how 90-degree days or 100-degree days will change in the future, and become more common statewide, we see a a much smaller increase uh, right along the Lake Michigan shoreline and also uh, along the the shore of Lake Superior as well. 
Okay. So now with the uh, weather, when you're looking for weather reports on a daily basis and you look at the, you know, forecast for seven days, I mean, it's pretty much a cliche that we say, well, you can't really trust the weather report because it never seems to actually pan out the way it's forecast. So if that's just the weather over the short term, then how do you actually predict the climate over such a long period of time? Yeah, so a couple things about that. One, it's true that weather forecasts are not perfect and they never will be. No. But if you look at the statistics and the and the documentation, you see that the forecasts have improved dramatically over the last 10, 20, 30 years. Hmm. I don't know the numbers precisely, but you'll hear things like the three-day forecasts of today are as accurate as the one-day forecasts were like 30 years ago. Okay. Things like this. I mean, it's dramatically improved. I mean, I, I just can't, in my lifetime, I've seen how much better weather forecasting has become day hmm. to day. So that's one point. Okay. The other point is that even though weather forecasts, short-term forecasts will never be perfect, uh, they differ fundamentally from climate forecasts because the short-term weather forecasts are determined by different processes or different timescales of processes. So a lot of it depends on what the, um, if you're making a forecast for, say, tomorrow, mm-hmm. a lot of it depends on what the initial atmospheric and, and ground conditions are today. Okay. So, for instance, it's hot right now in much of Wisconsin. It's been dry. And you can use that information to make a forecast for the next day or two. But climate forecasts are different. And um, they rely on on what are called boundary conditions. Mm. So it doesn't really matter if you're making a forecast for 50 years from now what the weather was like on June 11th of 2021. What matters then are things like what are the concentrations of greenhouse gases and what will be the strength of sunlight by that time in the solar cycle. Mm Mm-hmm and what kind of vegetation will we have in Wisconsin, things like this. And so they're really fundamentally different forecasts. And a lot of the climate forecasts are averaged. So you would look not so much at whether it got right the weather on a certain day 10 years from now, but you'd look more at the aggregate numbers and statistics to say, well, did springs become wetter in the future or did winters become milder in the future as climate models predict? So they're really, even though it seems like they're similar, short-term weather forecasts and long-term climate forecasts, they are fundamentally different in a lot of ways. So now one of your um, interest areas is the Arctic, you said. And so that is probably something that a lot of people hear about, that what's happening there is a better indication of what's happening with climate change. Is that accurate? That is accurate. The Arctic is warming two to three times faster than the rest of the world. Hmm. And in fact, it's the region warming the fastest anywhere. And uh, it's the region that's been warming the fastest over the last hundred years or so. And a lot of it is because of the loss of ice and snow cover in that part of the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, we see that even around Wisconsin in, in the winter and spring, the difference between a uh, field that's covered with a foot of snow is very different than that same field uh, if it all melts off and the sunshine can get absorbed by the ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you see that on a big scale in the Arctic. And so it's not unexpected at all that the Arctic is warming faster than the rest of the world, but it is dramatic and it's having huge implications for the people who live up there and the animals and, and mm. plants and so forth. So that's real. The polar ice cap is melting. Yeah, so it's the glaciers, the ice caps, like around parts of the Canadian islands, the Greenland ice sheet, mountain glaciers, and so forth. They're they're melting quickly. 
Uh, the permafrost, the frozen ground up in the Arctic is thawing rapidly. The um, coastlines are eroding because of the loss of sea ice, which helps to protect, uh, buffer the waves from uh, being as high. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of factors converging to make the Arctic warm the, the most of anywhere in the world. Mm. And and what is happening around the world in the Arctic does have to do with what humans are doing in the world. Absolutely right. Yeah, so again, getting back to climate models, which is my specialty, mm-hmm. climatologists have tried to figure out if there's some way to replicate the observed warming trend over, say, the last century without accounting for the increased abundance of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And it just, we can't do it. (laughs) We Mm. can look at things like solar cycles that vary over like 10 to 20 year periods, volcanism, aerosols, meaning pollutants that are kind of like black carbon in the atmosphere, ozone concentrations, all sorts of things, vegetation, you name it. And none of them produce by themselves or in combination the amount of warming that's been observed over the last century. Mm. It's only when you take into account the increase in the heat trapping gases in the atmosphere that you can replicate the observed warming trend. What is the worst actor of all of the polluting sources? Well, it's carbon dioxide. So that's the one that contributes the most. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit complicated because a single carbon dioxide molecule doesn't trap heat as well as something like a methane molecule. But carbon dioxide is so abundant in the atmosphere mm. that in some it has the biggest warming effect of all of those constituents. So even water vapor is a very important heat trapping gas, but it's increasing much at all is secondary compared to the pollution coming from, you know, being reflected by the CO2 levels. Mm-hmm. So then uh, what, what, are the, what are the things that contribute the most? Is there like a top five list of the, the biggest greenhouse gas polluters? Well, in this country, transportation is number one. Okay. Uh, That's the biggest contributor, but not by a lot. Close behind are things like electricity production and Mm. and heating and buildings, things like this. If transportation is number one right now and electricity is close behind, then if we were to move to electric vehicles and electric transportation, would that be better? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that would have a big impact, especially in the U.S. where those are such high sources. In okay. other countries, the carbon emissions may come from different sources. I mean, in the biggest ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this country, that's really big. And so that's one of the reasons there's such a push toward electrifying our economy and trying to get more electric cars instead of combustion engines and then uh, renewable energy, whether it's wind or solar. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of energy production would be much better for the atmosphere. Okay, so then when you say that electrical is not far behind carbon emissions as being one of the biggest greenhouse gas polluters, you don't mean electrical things that we use, such as an electrical vehicle. Well, it's both. So the transportation would be the pollution that comes out of our tailpipes when Mm -hmm. we're driving. So that would be the big transportation one. The electricity production would be things like coal-fired power plants that produce the energy that uh, leads to electricity in our homes. Okay. And so if we could find ways to get that electricity production more directly, say from solar, so mm-hmm. they heat up your hot water heater with the solar panel rather than getting it from a coal-fired power plant, that would be a lot better in terms of emissions. Okay. And so you were starting on the number three big greenhouse gas polluter. I think, don't quote me on this, but I think it's heat from buildings. I, oh. I think it's those are the big three. Is I think it's buildings, electrical generation, and then transportation. But okay. you know, I, I think they're close enough 
in proportion to each other that they can almost be thought of as equal. Okay. Especially the top two. And I think that maybe depending on what time period you look at, you might see one leapfrog the other. But mm-hmm. those are three of the biggest ones in this country. And that's for carbon dioxide. For methane, which is another important greenhouse gas, but mm-hmm. not as powerful in total as CO2, um, it comes from a lot of different sources. So livestock, farm production, mm-hmm. landfills, termites, there's all sorts of different sources of methane. So the strategies for dealing with it are somewhat different than CO2. Okay. Now, are you aware of collaborations between the scientists who are studying what is happening and what is going to happen, and then economists and policymakers who actually would have to look at the implications of making big changes? Like, what I'm thinking of is maybe if we were to actually get rid of all of our gas-fueled vehicles, gas and diesel-fueled vehicles, and went all-electric, then how would we pay for roads and highways since the gas tax pays so much of that? Is there any collaboration like among different groups of people that is tackling these larger issues that may prevent us from getting there? Yeah, so this is climate is inherently a very interdisciplinary problem. Mm -hmm. And so to tackle it, you have to have expertise from people in lots of different fields, including economists and policymakers. So this is one of the things that's very humbling. If you study climate like me, you realize how quickly you you are in over your head on some (laughs) of these questions. And so that requires collaboration. Mm -hmm. And so our Wisconsin Initiative on Climate Change Impacts Wiki that I'm co-director of is dealing with things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've been light on the economics part of it. Uh, That's something we need to do better about. But the idea is that we bring in expertise from lots of different fields and bring that expertise to bear on the climate problem Mm -hmm. and what to do about it in Wisconsin particularly. But there are other research centers that uh, have economists and climatologists and policymakers who get together, for example, and try to carve out some of these solutions. And an example is how economists tend to be very favorable uh, on the idea of a carbon tax, Hmm. thinking that that would be a very effective way of bringing down carbon emissions. Because then we put a price on carbon and we would incentivize people to use less and we would incentivize creative ways for businesses and maybe individuals to use that energy or use their um, carbon emissions more wisely. So right now, um, there's often not a big incentive for us to conserve because it's not all that expensive to burn carbon. But if it were more expensive and we had to find more creative ways to reduce our emissions, uh, that would probably lead to some creative thinking. Now, one of your research areas is the uh, origin of human impact on climate. And I was reading about the anthropogenic climate change, the early anthropogenic hypothesis, which posits Mm -hmm. that widespread deforestation and rice cultivation with the emergence of agriculture several thousand years ago, led to a gradual but significant rise in atmospheric CO2 and CH4, and and thus greenhouse warming. So it actually started then, according to this hypothesis, before the Industrial Revolution, correct? Right, right. Yep, thousands of years ago. It's really interesting. Most people think everything just started with the flip of the switch with the Industrial Revolution, but Sure. The research I've been heavily involved in with the creator of that hypothesis, Bill Rudiman, 
a retired professor at the University of Virginia, has shown uh, that very convincingly, in my opinion, that early farming had a significant impact on the global climate and that the, the carbon emissions associated with deforestation and rice paddy cultivation and livestock production beginning about 6,000 years ago had a measurable increasing effect on um, atmospheric carbon dioxide and methane concentration. Okay. And so we think that the, um, the beginnings of global warming from humans began uh, with agriculture mm. thousands of years ago and was greatly amplified by the Industrial Revolution, but we don't think that it started as late as the Industrial Revolution. Okay. Can you talk about why this kind of research is important? Like, why would it be really helpful to know this kind of thing? Well, there's the general interest. Yeah, we want to know our history, but sure. it's also critical since we're studying human-induced climate change that's all in the news, right? Yeah. We need to understand it better. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we think that everything began in, in terms of the human's effect on climate and, and the large-scale environment, if we think that only began a couple hundred years ago, we're misleading ourselves. We really don't understand the problem. And so you, you can take it more than one way. Some people would say, well, if farmers were already tinkering with climate thousands of years ago, then what we're doing is no different, and therefore it's, you know you could downplay it. But I would argue the opposite and say that if uh, a relatively few number of people thousands of years ago were capable of altering global climate, then you can better believe that with so many more people and so much more technology today, that the impact we're having on climate is that much larger. So now as a climatologist, then I'm sure you're not immune to people who don't quote unquote believe in climate change. How do you Mm -hmm. answer those people who don't believe in climate change? I think the key is to try to find out where they're coming from exactly. Like, what is it when they say something like that? What is it they don't believe? Do they not believe the climate's changing, for example? Mm -hmm. Uh, Or do they not believe that humans are responsible for that change? Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to probe with people to figure out where they're coming from and and where their resistance is. Or, you know, getting back to a point that you made earlier about weather forecast not being perfect and therefore some people dismiss climate change projections. Oh, sure. Is that their source of uh, skepticism? Mm-hmm. So I found that it helps a lot to, to first figure out where people are coming from, what their level or, or what their point of skepticism is, their on-ramp, so to speak, and also to reach in, in terms of the impact. Mm-hmm. You know, if people are into fishing, well, how's fishing been affected by climate change? You know, warmer waters, more runoff, more algae blooms in lakes, for example, that has an effect on fishing. So farmers, for example, extreme weather events and flooding affecting their operations. So trying to figure out where people are coming from, what their interests are when it comes to climate and weather is mm-hmm. helpful too. Now, I've read that in different parts of the world that climate change is going to have a more serious impact on the people who live there. So, for instance, if we were up here in Door County, for instance, uh, supposed to have maybe not quite as dramatic of an impact from climate change, then there are other places in the world where people are really going to be experiencing almost unlivable conditions. Is that a scenario that could happen where somewhere else in the world, climate change has made it uninhabitable? And then we here are just thinking, well, you know, it's really not real because it's not impacting our lives. Yeah, so one of the problems with climate change, one of the things that makes it such a thorny problem is that the people responsible for it are not experiencing the impacts proportionately. Hmm. So, uh, 
here we are in, in North America, here we are in Wisconsin and Door County in particular, relatively buffered, for example, in terms of heat waves, we think, in the future. Mm. But yet, North America is responsible for a disproportionate amount of carbon emissions and therefore responsible for climate change that affects people in other parts of the world who contributed very little, but yet they're the ones who may suffer disproportionately from the impact. Mm -hmm. So one of the examples is people who live in these low-lying Pacific Island states that are becoming quickly uninhabitable by rising sea levels. Uh, they've got nowhere to go, and uh, yet they've contributed next to nothing to the problem. Hmm. So few people, and um, so that's a real injustice. There are other examples, too, parts of the Middle East, some people think, uh, may become physiologically uninhabitable hmm. in the summers because the combination of heat and humidity could become so extreme that it, it gets beyond the ability of even in air conditioners to keep up, for example. Huh. And already in parts of the Arctic, there are villages that have had to relocate or are considering relocating because the shoreline on which they built uh, is eroding because of the wave action and the loss of permafrost and growing waves from the Arctic Ocean gobbling away the shoreline. Hmm. And so people there literally are having to move um, and become climate refugees, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so there are clear examples of how really most of those people are not contributing very much at all to the problem, and yet they're suffering extremely uh, from the consequences of climate change. Hmm. Now, I always like to ask um, when I have the opportunity to talk with somebody who, who works in this field, you know, the, the problem seems so big. And even as you talk about other parts of the world don't, actually contribute to the problem that's occurring, individuals can feel that same helplessness. You know, I mean, maybe they feel like individually they're not really contributing to this massive problem that we have with climate. So I always like to ask, like, what can we do as individuals that really does make a difference? Well, there's, there's a whole range of things we can do that, that make a difference. Sometimes the challenging part is knowing which ones have the biggest effect. Mm. There's a really good book called Drawdown. Oh. Project Drawdown is the name of the initiative. And they've collected a group of policy experts and energy experts, put them together, did a lot of research, and came up with their list of uh, top 100 or so actions that can be taken in, in order, in priority. Um, that have the biggest effects toward mitigating climate change. Hmm. And some of them are surprising. Some of them aren't, you know, promoting more solar farms and wind energy. That's no surprise. Mm -hmm. But one of the ones that's near the top of the list, I think it's number three, is reducing food waste. Oh. And that's one that you wouldn't think of. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one that all of us have direct control over. And it's also one that nobody wants to do, whether right. you care about climate change or not. Nobody wants to waste food. Mm -hmm. And so this is a real opportunity. Uh, there's a lot of carbon emissions that come from food production. And if we can do that a lot more efficiently and not waste food, we'll be uh, better off in terms of the climate and our pocketbooks and also our health. Another one is um, the benefits to our health, having a more active lifestyle, relying less on driving. So there's some health co-benefits that way. Mm -hmm. There's also been quite a bit of work talked about in terms of the type of food we eat. Not all uh, food production or calories generated in food production come with the same carbon footprint. For example, beef production tends to produce a lot more greenhouse gases than you know, plant-based diets. Mm -hmm. And even meat-based diets are not the same. Beef and lamb uh, is higher than things like chicken and pork, for mm. example. 
and fish. So those are all ways that we can have a, a direct impact on the climate in ways that aren't difficult and in ways that can be beneficial to us. I always encourage people to vote. That's another one that you can do every so often uh, to have to make a statement. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are some large-scale things that we need to do societally. A lot of these are being talked about in the infrastructure plan that Biden's put forth and, uh, you know, things like converting our cars to electric and large-scale renewable energy projects. Mm-hmm. Without those sorts of huge structural changes, I think that the, the individual actions, while important, are not going to add up enough to get us to where we need to be. Mm. See, and that's the part where people get, you know, probably, well, I'm not going to look in my refrigerator right now and or buy, and see how many rotting vegetables I have uh, in one of the bins. I think that's the, that's the hurdle, the individual hurdle that we have to get over is that, well, I can do my part, but really, if that's not going to make a huge difference because of the carbon emissions that I'm not responsible for that are being pumped into the atmosphere. So I think that's the hurdle, right, to try and get over. It can be. Um, one advantage we have, for better or for worse, as Americans, is that we are big energy hogs, and <laughs> uh, we pollute a lot more than we ought to. Mm-hmm. And so anything that Americans do with our high consumptive lifestyle and high emissions lifestyle mm-hmm. will have a disproportionately big impact compared to someone who lives in a country where uh, the technology is such that they, they don't admit hmm. nearly as much as we do. So sure. that's one way to think of it is that as Americans uh, and anyone in the developed world, we, we um, can have a lot of bang for our buck if we change some of our, our habits. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Stephen, thank you very much for talking with me today. It's always so fascinating talking to climatologists. I'd love some time to get into the actual models to see what you see from those. Um, But I imagine they would be a little bit over my head. But if, you know, maybe sometime you could join us again and talk more about some of the models and the, you know, forecasts and what specifically that you're seeing. Absolutely, yeah. A lot of it is interpreting the models, what they're telling us. And if they disagree, it's it's people like me trying to figure out how do we sort the truth out from that confusion. Huh. Okay. Interesting. Well, I'm hoping that uh, this heat wave will break. (laughs) And as you said, it's not as, yeah, as as you said, it's not as hot as in other places in Wisconsin, but when when you're not accustomed to it, it's pretty, it's pretty hot. So. Right. Well, hang in there. It'll it'll eventually turn around. All right. Well, thank you, Stephen, so much for joining us today. Again, this is Deborah Fitzgerald talking with Stephen Vavris, and he's a senior scientist at the Nelson Institute of Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And you are listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at the Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.